got a little ritual of, of books that I read, uh, chapters, I should say, in, in different books. And I, I look at the historicity, I try to look at the meaning, and my heart almost always melts when I, when, when I do this. And I am just overcome by the, by the idea or the realization that, that this thing, this resurrection of Jesus in the middle of history really did happen. And it really changes everything. And that's an experience I have almost yearly. And other experience, spiritual experiences as well. And then there's another experience that I have almost yearly, and that is I, I encounter suffering in a way, most of, the to- most of the time remotely, in a way that it just doesn't make sense that a loving God can allow something like that. And this year is young, but, but the, the instance that really shook me and a lot of other people was this picture of this father holding the, the hand of his daughter who's caught up in the rubble in the Syria-Turkey earthquake. And he refused to let her go. He can't get to her. She's still under debris. But he got his hand, and he's just sitting there holding on to it. And it's so unsettling, and it's so upsetting. Most philosophers today would even say, yeah, the, the existence of evil cannot get rid of God. It, it doesn't work because of the work at planting I did. And then a little bit more existential, you've got guys like C.S. Lewis. I know a lot of people who see, ah, oh, C.S. Lewis, I've heard a lot about him. Let me read his problem of pain. And then like, ooh, uh, you know, after reading the first five pages, be a little bit discouraging. So there are other Lewis books that I think are easier, by the way. Uh, but also an, an amazing treatment on this very difficult topic. But these guys are trying to engage with it philosophically, trying to engage with it intellectually. And, and then you get, get the Psalms. And the Psalms, evil and suffering obviously in this world, the way that the Psalms deal with this contradiction is praying through it. They pray through it. They, they put, they, they lay out this contradiction in front of God. And they ask him, you must deal with this. What is going on? We don't understand this. And this practice is called lament. And the third of the Psalms actually consists of lament. And especially in the evangelical church tradition, we have mostly lost this, this very important practice. We, we sometimes portray ourselves as little spiritual Lego movies where everything is awesome. Everything is awesome when you work as a team. Everything is awesome. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to dismiss other churches. There are wonderful churches uh, across th- this great city of ours. But not all of them have billboard, billboards of the pastor and his wife outside. So in, instead of just having the pastor and the wife or the wife and the husband, who knows how it works, instead of, of, of just having that pair there, I've, I've driven past places where they include the kids as well, and they dress them up in little suits, like a toddler in a suit. I didn't know that that even exists. And then they're looking back at you, and they, it, it, everything just looks awesome and amazing. Come to our church. And there is this idea that something like complaining, lamenting, that cannot 
possibly work within the realms of, of a place where everybody's teeth look like this, right? And I should say, the Psalms is, is very far removed from this sanitized Christianity that I just described. It's gritty, it's raw, it's ugly. And it, the, the, the Psalms do two things, or rather they don't do two things, and that is, they're not sentimental. They don't say, everything is amazing, ah, you know what, God has a plan, everything is great. They don't, they, they don't get on the sentimental bandwagon. Likewise, they don't, they don't disengage. They don't say, ah, oh, you know what, God, you didn't come through for me. Cheers. This is it. This doesn't work. I can't resolve this tension, so I'm just going to walk away. And if we call the one sentimentality and we call the other one cynicism, the Psalms do not do either of that. They don't ignore their feelings, but they also don't listen to their feelings. What do they do? They pray their feelings. That is the difference. Now, if, my, if, if, if your prayers look anything like mine, it mostly consists of, Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Please, please, please. Okay? I, I don't describe the problem. Some, somewhere in me, I think, oh, God, you already know what's going on. So, ah, please, please, please. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, just get over to the petition, and that, in, in that way, I'm more constructive with the time that I'm spending with God. And... Uh, you know, you, you only have so many appointments where you have to squish in a lot of things. But the psalmist, he does something different, something completely different. And that is, he describes the problem over and over again. And the psalm that I want to read uh, to us this morning, uh, where, where are we now, evening, is Psalm 22. Now just check what, what David is doing here for 18 verses. You can follow along if you want or just listen attentively. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him, they say. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me now when the trouble is near and when there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. 
Oh, you my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. All right. Now, I know sometimes poetry can, can be a little bit difficult to follow, uh, you know, especially if you consider a narrative. But there's, there's something important that is happening in this psalm, and that is, I just read 22 verses, 21 verses. For 18 verses, he was just describing the problem. For three verses, he was petitioning God. 18 verses, just going on. He is giving this vivid imagery to describe what's going on in his heart, and he's just praying it to God. And that reminds me of a, of a letter that went viral a few years ago when uh, a guy wrote on a napkin his experience on an airplane and he gave it to these people and, and since it has been transcribed, this, this complaint and, or this lament, I think we can learn quite a bit from it. It goes like this, Dear Continental Airlines, I am disgusted as I write this note to you about the miserable experience I am having sitting in seat 29E on one of your aircrafts. As you may know, this seat is situated directly across from the toilet, so close that I can reach out my left arm and touch the door. All my senses are being tortured simultaneously. It's difficult to say what's the worst part about sitting in 29E. Is it the stench of the sanitation fluid that bl that's blown all over my body every 60 seconds when the door opens? Is it the whoosh of the constant flushing? Or is it the passenger butt, pa passenger's butt that seemed to fit into my personal space like a pornographic jigsaw puzzle? I constructed a stink shield by shoving one end of a blanket into the overhead compartment. While effective in blocking at least some of the smell and offering a small bit of privacy, the butt-on-body factor has increased. As without my evil glare, passengers feel free to lean up against what they think is some kind of blanketed wall. The next butt that touches my shoulder will be the last. I am picturing a boardroom full of executives giving props to the young promising engineer that figured out how to squeeze an additional row of seats onto this plane by putting them next to the toilet. I would like to flush his head in the toilet that I am close enough to touch and taste from my seat. Putting a seat here was a very bad idea. I just heard a man groan in there. Worse yet, I've paid over 400 US dollars for the honor of sitting in this seat. Does your company give refunds? I'd like to go back where I came from and start over. See, 29E could only be worse if it was located inside the bathroom. I wonder if my clothing will retain the sanitizing odor. What about my hair? I feel like I'm bathing in a toilet bowl of blue liquid and there's no man in a little boat to save me. I'm filled with a deep hatred for your plain designer and a general dis-ease that may last for hours. We are finally descending and soon I will be able to tear down the stink shield, but the scars will remain. <laughs> I suggest that you initiate immediate removal of this seat from all your crafts. Just remove it and leave the smoldering brown hole empty. A good place for sturdy, non-absorbing luggage maybe, but not human cargo. 
And this is the letter from C29E. Nobody knows who wrote it, <laughs> by the way. They, we just know this is the letter from C29E. Now, I think we can learn a lot because this guy only petitioned a few lines near the end. The rest of the time, he was really describing his problem. And I think it must have been very therapeutic for him to work on this napkin. If you look at the original, he actually draws pictures at some points of this is my experience right now. So he's got like three or so illustrations along the way of uh, seed 29E. The difference, however, comes in between the letter from seed 29E and the Psalmter in the sense that in the Psalms, the psalmist also preaches at himself. So in other words, it's not just describing the problem. It's not just sticking with lament, although there's nothing wrong with that. It almost always goes over into a place where he vents, he pours out his soul, but then he also preaches to himself. And it is, it is so important. He, he does two things. So maybe you guys picked up on it. In verse 4, he says, In our fathers... In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So he is there referring to his ancestors. Now, why is that important? Because he wasn't there. That's not a first-hand experience. It's not even an experience that he got from his, uh, from his, from his parents. This is an experience he has from this tradition in which he belongs. And he is drawing from that. Now, friends... When I struggle with God, when there are things that I wrestle with, and I struggle with this contradiction that we described in the beginning, then it helps me to look at certain things that happened corporately. So, for example, I, I will quickly, I will, I will find a lot of encouragement by, by listening to preachers such as uh, Tim Mackey and uh, Tim Keller, and I won't necessarily... Listen to it as if it is mine, but I would from a distance just experience how they see God, how they experience God, what they have discovered, and it draws me a little bit closer. Likewise, they are, uh, there are different things, like the resurrection accounts, again, like I told you earlier. When I, when I read that, when I read of the historicity, when I read of the, uh, the beauty and the meaning of it, then... I am accessing other people's ideas about this. I'm not trying to speak to God directly at that moment, but I am trying to, to gain access to God through the tradition, so to speak. Something else that really helps me is looking at the lives of the saints. So I'll think, you know what, I, I don't particularly feel like I want to follow God now, but geez, it really transformed a guy like Albert Lutuli in his struggle against apartheid. And this guy was just so righteous till the end. It really, this encounter with Jesus, even though I've got, I feel a little bit abandoned by God at the moment, even though I'm, I, I, there's a radio silence between me and God, a guy like William Wilberforce was really transformed by, by his experience of Jesus and transformed the world. Uh, I mean, you can, you can fill, in, fill in the blank, Basil of Nyssa, etc., etc. So I, I gain something through that. Another practice that I have and again, you please don't copy-paste my practices because it's, you know, copyrighted. But, uh, you know, I, I, I listen to Mumford and & Sons. And, and sometimes I just listen to those guys and they, to me, 
they're very close to, you know, I don't know, modern day Psalms. And I, I just, again, gain a little bit of intimacy with God remotely. So this is preaching to yourself, but it goes something like this. Oh, well, these Mumford and Sons guys really seem to talk about you quite poetically and nicely, so, so let me listen to them. Wow, these Keller and Mackie guys, they really, they, they, they see a harmony in Scripture that's really exciting, so I can listen to them. Okay, yeah, I can do that. And then it goes over uh, to, okay, well, this, this resurrection account is really compelling, and it really looks like this actually happened, and it had a massive effect on history, etc., etc. I access the tradition. The the tradition or the ancestors that David is referring to was pretty much undoubtedly the Exodus, right? How God saved the, the Israelites from, from bondage, from captivity. And I think when we do this, when we, when, we, when we make this move of placing our suffering within this context, we are indeed placing our abandonment, our forsakenness within the larger story of God's redemptive work. And it gives context. It helps. And there's something else that we need to hold on to, and that is the personal dimension. So he immediately goes over and he says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. So what he's doing there is he is drawing on his personal experience. So his darkness, there's no personal experience between him, between him and God at the moment. But he remembers, no, 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 I've, I've, we've, we've had it good before. God, there was intimacy before. I want that again. And he reminds himself of, of that experience that he had with God uh, before. When, when I do couples counseling, and it's a mess, like these, these, uh, you know, these, these guys aren't talking to each other, and it's uh, pretty much separation, then... Uh, something that's, that's sometimes helpful to ask is, uh, is there something that you can still appreciate about the other person? And then, depending on the temperature, sometimes there'll be nothing, nothing. There's absolutely nothing. So, okay, well, just try and get one thing. Uh, I guess when he makes me coffee in the morning, that's kind of okay. Oh, okay. And then, anything else? Uh, he's not the worst father in the world. You know, he changes nappies. You know. And... And then you as, as you, as you start to name these various personal experiences, this cloud of despair and disappointment just becomes a little bit infiltrated by these little experiences that we forget because it is so overwhelming what is going on. There's that song, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Who knows that song? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the song basically says that Look, there's nothing between us. We are really struggling. Um, but I remember the last time things were okay. I remember laughing. We both kind of liked it. So I say, uh, well, that's the one shot we've got. And, and so, so let's go to Tiffany's. Let's go to this restaurant and see if we can rekindle something. I think that's what the psalmist is doing here. I remember, God, that experience I had with you on the beach. That experience I had with you next to the deathbed of my father, um, where I felt you more than ever. I remember that, and I'm going to hold on to that, even though I feel nothing right now. Are you with me? Now, for me, the, if, if I have to reflect on what was that 
the most personal experience, I, I guess it it will look silly by comparison to to many of your you know personal experiences with God, but I was just such a self conscious and self aware teenager, and it just became nauseating and intolerable. Always felt like there was this device on my head with a camera that's pointing at me. And I'm walking through life like that and constantly asking myself, am I coming across okay? Am I being funny? Am I being witty? What did she think of me? Uh, and, and just all these voices in my head and it was, just, it was just intolerable. And then I came across uh, a book or books that just said, your life is not about you. Nobody cares what you think of yourself. I, I know that's the Hollywood advice, but that's stupid. Don't worry about what you think of yourself. Only worry about what God thinks of you. And that might not mean anything to you, but when I say that, I remember, oh, yeah, that was so liberating. For me, for Johan Erasmus, that is my personal liberating experience. And how the, the gospel just brought a little bit of heaven in my existential teenage hell. <laughs> okay, I, I'm, I'm being a little bit melodramatic, but uh, it is using that personal experience to gain access to God in, in the darkness. Now, here's the thing, friends. There's this, we need to be careful here. Let's say you pray your feelings tonight. Let's say you reflect a little bit on the tradition and things that you find inspiring within the body of Scripture or within church history. Let's say you move over from there and you try and remember the, the last personal good experience that you had with God. Um, then, bada bim, bada boom, you're going to have intimacy with God. No, it, it, it doesn't quite work like that. And it's good that it doesn't work like that. Because God is not a machine. It's not a vending machine, and he's not a genie. So it's not a lamp that you have to rub the right way, and then he comes out and he gives you your, your wish. He's a person. And that means that he is, in a, in, in a sense, unpredictable. Now, it is good because it is a reminder that you cannot keep God on a string. So we've got bad pictures of God in our heads, often in the church today. And by feeling, experiencing God's silence can sometimes destroy those bad pictures that we have of God. Does that make sense? So if we think that he responds to this, he's always, uh, th this is always what he thinks in this situation. You've got this particular dogmatic idea, and then you do all the right things and you just hear nothing, nothing. And that can be a purifying silence as well. It often is. In Narnia, Aslan comes to the rescue, and it's amazing. But then very quickly in the story, Aslan is missing in action for long times in the Narnia time frame. And then little Lucy, she would go back to the places where she saw Aslan last time. But why isn't he here? This is, I did this exactly this same thing last time, and Aslan was here, and he saved the day. And then the advice comes, no, no, no. Aslan is a wild lion. He's free. He's not going to respond in the way that you necessarily want him to respond because he's not a machine. He's not a, he's not a genie. But he is good. And this produces resilience and perseverance in the believer. 
Now, there's this massive shift in the psalm from verse 22. This guy is just, he's just given his experience from seat 29E. And now he goes over and he says this. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied, those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the ones who could not keep themselves alive. Posterity shall serve them. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet, yet unborn, that he has done it. Now, what's interesting about that is that here's a, a person who has not experienced deliverance at all. And he just seamlessly go, goes over into this, into this praise. And he's holding on to this hope. And... Why that is amazing is because it goes against a lot of our modern secular wisdom, which is follow your heart. Pretty much the premise of every Disney movie ever, right? Uh, if you don't feel like it, just, just back out. If, you, um, if the relationship isn't working for you anymore, then I mean, just, just, just go. If, uh, if that church isn't working for you, go. If the bank doesn't work for you, go. If you don't want to... It's this consumer relationship, and we buy things and we drop things immediately. And the psalmist refused to do that. He's not, not going to abandon God and walk away and say, okay, God, well, um, and you, you can phone me, and I will listen to your apology, and then we can maybe try and rekindle. But, but as far as I'm concerned, I, yeah, I'm terminating this contract. No. He says, you know what? I will praise you. You know what? He, he, he doesn't just stop there. He's got, this, he's got this cosmic hope in this dry spell that he's experiencing. Now, friends, I don't want to trivialize a very emotive topic, but, uh, and, and there are different things that one can say about it. But something like divorce, it, the, the statistics are, are staggering. And and, and, and I don't want to say that it's always wrong. What I will say is I think a lot of people get divorced. And, and if they stuck in the marriage after a few years, they would have been glad about that decision. As a matter of fact, a lot of the studies show that people who, who stayed in the marriage after, after two or so years, they are glad they did it. It, it, it goes better. Please see the disclaimer that there are abusive relationships and, and it is good to walk away from it, absolutely. But we need to be very careful of this zeitgeist we find ourselves in, of just walking away. Well, my feelings, I, 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 don't, I, I, I don't love you anymore. Like, what on earth does that even mean? If I followed my feelings, I would be married to my wife a week at a time. And, uh, and, and, and I would be... 
I mean, we'd break up. And in, in a week, I would miss her a big time. Like, uh, she's very handy. But I... I, I, and then, and then I would 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 walk away again, and and there would be this uh, stupid stupid game that we play. But the point is, I don't trust my feelings, guys. If if I want to be perfectly honest, I was having a nice nap this afternoon. I didn't particularly feel like coming to church this uh, this evening. And the fact of the matter is, we 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 our feelings has been valorized as the most important thing. No. If you behave as if you love something, your feelings will follow. So even if you are in a dark patch with God, even if you feel forsaken, if you, even if you feel abandoned, just continue to serve Him. Do your Bible study, even if you get nothing from it. Pray, even if you get nothing from it. Have you ever experienced that this concrete wall that we have in our church, which is not very prayer-friendly, that it just bounces off um, from, the, from the roof? Have you, have you ever experienced that? Yes, just continue, just pray. Go. Do it not because you get something out of it, but because of, of your commitment. If it's true in marriage, it is true in our relationship with God as well. What makes Psalm 22 particularly interesting, and I'm not sure if you guys picked up on it when we read it the first time, is that this is the psalm that was on the lips of Jesus when he was crucified. As a matter of fact, this whole psalm is being played out in different ways in the whole crucifixion narrative. So for example, in verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Verse 8, he trusts in the Lord, they say. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verse 14 and 15, he says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. And then he says, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. When Jesus says, I thirst, he is recalling something of this. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, and they have pierced my hands and my feet. And then verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. There are other parallels as well. These are the most obvious. This psalm is a psalm is a prayer for the forsaken. It's a prayer for people who feel abandoned by God. David prayed it. Between him and Jesus, there was a thousand years. We can imagine that a lot of people prayed the same prayer in that millennia. Jesus prays it on the cross. And to this day, we are called to pray this prayer of lament, this prayer of forsakenness. But you see, there's, there's an anchor to hold on to, and that is this. This psalm, when David wrote this psalm, I think it would have been meaningful, it would have been beautiful, but reading this psalm through the lens of the crucifixion and what Jesus did tells us a few things. I cannot make sense of the earthquake in Turkey. I cannot make sense of a lot of the evil that's happening in this world, and I'm not going to pretend to tell you why it's happening. 
But what I do know is that the God I worship is not aloof to those things. If we believe that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, he is God himself, and he comes and he experiences this anguish, he takes it upon himself, that's going to mean something, right? I've read this quote before uh, by John Stott. I just find it beautiful. He says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as the God on the cross. In the real world of pain, and how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I have had to turn away, and in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from the thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of this. You guys seen the latest Thor, Love and Thunder, I think. It starts off with uh, Christian Bale trying to help his child. And then he goes to this God that he worships. And this God is just such an idiot. But he's very typical of the Greek pantheon, by the way. Just super selfish. Couldn't care less about people. And then eventually, uh, you know, Christian Bale, he spends the, the rest of his life trying to slay these gods, obviously, based on a true story. And the, the, the fact of the matter is that those views of, of God, of the gods being aloof, being detached from us, that was very common throughout history. And I think it is still common in many of the major uh, faiths as well. But there's one thing about the Christian religion that you cannot say, and that is that God does not care, that God is aloof, that God is detached. You can't look at the cross and say those things. And there's a second thing to hold on to, an anchor. Through the cross, God initiates this massive project that gives hope. Just, just read the last part of Psalm 22 again. He says, those who are dead, who are in the dust, uh, you will deliver them. Those who are not yet born and who will die, you will deliver them. Uh, not just our little country, all the countries. Not just our little race, all the races, all the, all the world. He's got this cosmic hope that he, that he holds on to. And, and that's actually all we've got is to hold on to that. I want us to pray, friends. And it's a prayer. It was written by a guy called Richard Foster. I want us to just close our eyes as I, as I read this prayer. God, where are you? And what have I done to make you hide from me? Are you playing cat and mouse with me? Or are your purposes larger than my perceptions? I feel alone, God. I feel lost. I feel forsaken. 
You are the God who majors in revealing yourself. You showed yourself to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. When Moses wanted to know what you looked like, you obliged him. Why them and not me? I am tired of praying. I am tired of asking. I am tired of waiting. But I will keep on praying and asking and waiting because I have nowhere else to go. Jesus, you too knew the loneliness of the desert and the isolation of the cross. And it is through your forsaken prayer that I speak these words. Amen.